the text reads like this. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around. His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord. Before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim his righteousness and all the peoples see his glory. All worshipers of images are put to shame who make their boast in worthless idols. Worship him, all you gods. Zion hears and is glad, and the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments, O Lord. For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. O you who love the Lord, hate evil. He preserves the lives of his saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light is sown for the righteous, and joy for the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, and give thanks to his holy name. something, our whole world becomes encompassed by that worship. What we just watched together was the Fiji rugby team singing out a hymn called Noku Masu before a match with Papua New Guinea. 
I saw this being shared around on social media a couple months ago and was blown away by the elegance of this hymn and just the context of where it was being sung. Here you have a sports team in a secular world, a secular sports league, proclaiming God's glory to all around them, to everyone on the pitch, everyone in the stand, and everybody watching online. I was so interested to learn more about this rugby team, so I did some digging to understand not only more about the rugby team, but the nation of Fiji in general. I was completely shocked to find out that Fiji is a predominantly Christian nation, with over 64% of the nation identifying as Christian. Christian living and Christian culture are such a big part of the lives of these people that one of their players, when interviewed about this hymn, said, in Fiji, there's rugby, God, and work, and that's all they strive for. This culture is so devoted to serving God that their own national team is singing hymns uh, before matches as a dedication to God for the work that they are about to do. What is so amazing about these players' faith in God, it motivates them and informs every single part of their lives. They have their priorities straight. They know that Christ is our king, and they know that everyone should hear the good news of the gospel. That is why for this rugby team, it is important for them to sing this hymn when translated into English, proclaims, this is my prayer that I am yearning for, so that I can praise your name further, the name of Jehovah to you, Jehovah. As Christians, these men were serving as a perfect example of what it means to live our lives knowing that the Lord is God alone. It shouldn't be something that we are trying to understand merely on an intellectual level but something that is embodied in our everyday actions as we seek to honor the Lord with our lives. That is why this clip that we just watched together, I believe to be so powerful. Because even though being a rugby player is each of their jobs, even though they are representing their country as they walk onto the pitch, their biggest concern is always about how they can be honoring God as creator and king. So this evening, we're going to be continuing our series in the Psalms, looking at how the psalmist talk about the different attributes of God. And tonight, we're going to be looking at Psalm 97 together, a psalm that very clearly proclaims that the Lord reigns. Our goal this evening is to understand plainly that the Lord is God alone. There is no one like him. There is no salvation for our souls outside of him. He is the one and only God. As we break down this psalm together, we will see that the Lord reigns, how the world proclaims his righteousness, and how the Lord's people rejoice in his reign. So let's begin by looking here at the first five verses of Psalm 97. The text reads like this. It says, the Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. 
righteousness, and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around. His lightnings light up the world and the earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. This section of the psalm begins by telling us simply that the Lord reigns. This is the fundamental truth that the psalmist begins with and writes the entire rest of the psalm about. The Lord reigns. In this section, we see the psalmist list many reasons why we should be rejoicing in this truth, particularly dealing with the character of God and what his reign is like. So to begin, my first point for this evening is as simple as it's exactly the first line of this psalm. The Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice. Just as we did when we studied Psalm 1 a few weeks ago, let us break down each part of this metaphor that the psalmist is presenting to us to look and see exactly what he means by each of the metaphors. So he begins by saying that there are clouds and thick darkness all around him. You see, this language is not unique to this passage, as you will see with a lot of different metaphors here in this passage. We see this language of thick darkness and clouds around him used for describing the manifest presence of God in the Old Testament. It is most prominent in Exodus uh, when Moses would go to meet with God on Mount Sinai in both Exodus 19 and 20. The language here draws a sense of familiarity to us as the audience who are familiar with the Exodus account. So if we needed any confirmation that the God here in Psalm 97 is the same God in other parts of the Old Testament, and we have it right here. Continuing on, righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne and the basis of his reign. When people come into power over nations, a decision always makes itself known. Will they use their power for good and for the good of the people, or will they use it for their own benefit? Many have tried to answer this question during their time in power with varying degrees of success. Some have, had, some have done real good for this world, while others have done only evil. While many have tried, though, none have ever done a perfect job, as I'm sure the political landscape would tell us. <laughs> no one but our God will ever be the perfect ruler. This is because his reign is marked with both perfect righteousness and perfect justice. Under the rule of the perfect king, we experience a peace that can only be achieved because God himself rules. This, is not, this not only brings joy from his people, which we will see later when we get to verse 8, but we also see it now from the nations when it says distant shores rejoice in verse 1. The next thing that the psalmist describes is about, about God is that the fire goes before him. This fire signifies God's judgment against the world. Again, this language is not very unique to this passage, with fire signifying judgment in places like Isaiah 43 and Amos chapter 1. Building upon the righteousness and justice of God's throne, as we just talked about, 
the judgment fire then goes forward as an outworking of his righteous judgment. This fire consumes only those who are his enemies and oppose him. The fire does not go against those who do not deserve it, but against those who are unrighteous. Injustice will burn up with the unjust, and we will see a peace that we could never experience without this act. The next description that the psalmist uses is talking about how God's lightnings light up the world. The psalmist uses this metaphor not only to represent God's power, but his goodness as well. God brings light to the world and brings us as his people into the light, but also shows us his power through it. Our God is all-powerful, and he reigns as our king. We can be confident and secure in his position, knowing that he will forever be our king. And finally, the last description that we have in this, part, in this section of the Psalms says the mountains melt like wax. Again, emphasizing and highlighting the amazing power of God. Mountains which are almost always seen as immovable, melt easily when they come into the proximity of God's glory. As one commentator put it beautifully, in the created realm, there is surely nothing more fixed than a mountain, yet it seems to melt like wax compared to the reality of God himself. His glory is more concrete and tangible than the mountains. Our God is all-powerful. He is omnipotent, which means that our God can do anything according to his character. He is so powerful and so glorious that when we, when we begin to think of things as immovable as mountains, they melt freely and without difficulty when held up to God's glory. What we see here in each description, each depiction, each metaphor is it's showing us the power of our awesome God. Our God is so amazing and so powerful that our only reaction to this truth, as we see in the beginning of this passage, is to rejoice. We can rejoice with confidence and knowing that our God is all-powerful. There is nothing outside of his will that cannot be accomplished, including the salvation of our own souls. If you were ever worried about your own salvation, yet God has brought you out of the darkness, he has regenerated your heart and saved you, and you have repented of your sins as a result of that, you can rest assured in God's power that he will bring you salvation. If any of you are constantly worrying about the state of your salvation, lacking confidence if you are truly going to be saved, then it's passages like Psalm 97 that you need to be looking to for assurance because our God reigns and will continue to reign forevermore. But the question then stands, how do we rejoice in the truth that God reigns? What does it look like to constantly rejoice? Well, lucky for us, we've already looked at an example tonight Fiji's rugby team serves as an amazing example of what it is to be constantly rejoicing in the knowledge that God saved us. 
None of them were embarrassed to be singing at the top of their lungs in the middle of the pitch. They were instead embracing and celebrating the opportunity to praise God. In the context of our own lives, we need to throw away any sense of embarrassment for the salvation that we have been gifted. This means thing, this practically means that say we are invited to stay late at a friend's place on Saturday night, we should not be embarrassed to turn down that invitation and head home so we can be well rested for a Sunday service. This means when a coworker or a fellow student asks you about your involvement in the church and what it all means, that you should gladly and joyfully tell them about the blessing of fellowship that you have here with the other church members and with God. Do not be embarrassed of the fact that you know the king of the universe and that he loves you as his own child. Embrace it, celebrate it. Make it known to the world around you that there is a king and his name is Jesus. The Lord reigns, let us rejoice. Picking back up in verses, verse six, we're gonna read verse six and seven, which says, the heavens proclaim his righteousness and all the people see his glory. All worshipers of images are put to shame who make their boast in worthless idols. Worship him, all you gods. After seeing how the Lord is reigning over all and getting a glimpse of God's awesome power, the psalmist shifts to show us how the world and the people in it respond. Of course, we see the two different types of responses as we saw a couple weeks ago in Psalm 1. But one thing is clear above all of that, which leads me to my second point for this evening. The world proclaims the Lord's righteous reign. What is so amazing about the power of God is that not only do people declare the righteousness of God, but all of creation proclaim his righteousness as well. When we look at the intricacies of creation, how our bodies know how to regulate our vitals to keep us alive, or how certain species of plants and animals interact in order for different plants to spread around and grow, or even just the intricacies of certain landscapes, we see that there is a creator behind all of creation. You see, the act of looking towards the things of nature and creation and studying God through it is actually its own branch of theology called natural theology. There are many benefits to understanding, uh, to the understanding of natural theology, but there are also some things that we need to be cautious about when thinking about it. So say, for example, if we were to look at a field of poppies that have sprouted, we would be able to look at it and to reasonably conclude that the God who created it is powerful and wise. That is what we see here when this verse is telling us that the heavens are declaring God's righteousness. I want you to do a little bit of a mental exercise with me. I want you to think a minute with me about your favorite view of nature that you have ever seen. Maybe it's from the top of a mountain or a hill looking down into the valley below. Maybe it's the view of a beautiful sunset over the sea. I mean, 
Have you seen the sunsets out on the prom? They're amazing. Whatever it is, think about the sense of awe that that view brings. The wide variety of color, the sense of scale, the overall beauty of this view. The sense of wonderment that we experience carries with itself a sense of reverence. When we glance at a beautiful landscape, we are essentially looking at a painting. And there can be no painting without there first being a painter. But there's one warning that I would like to give you also concerning natural theology. While we can conclude that there is a powerful creator behind creation through natural theology, we cannot find salvation through Christ through the study of natural theology. We see this in Romans 1.20 where it says, for his invisible, for his, meaning God's, invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Although we can see and perceive some of God's invisible attributes, we cannot perceive the good news of the gospel because we need to learn uh, because we cannot learn about the work of Christ through nature. So natural theology then gives us the general revelation that there is a creator who has brought us into existence. This means that everyone has a sense that they were created by God and that they know that he is powerful. But that does not mean that we do not need our special revelation in our Bibles and in our scriptures. That is why that the psalmist just doesn't stop there. He continues and says that, that, people, that all people see his glory, not just some people, but all and an inclusive all people have seen glimpses of the glory of God. And it isn't through natural theology alone that we see this. Each of us has the law of the Lord written on our hearts. Throughout various cultures during all of human history, we have lifted up common values of, of things like love, truth, and peace. And all of that come from the roots of God's law. Again, looking back in Romans, Romans 2, 14 through 15 Say, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. The problem is that our sin causes us to want to suppress this law and instead embrace immorality and lawlessness. Our world tries to come up with excuses for, for ways where this couldn't be the case in order for them to keep hold of their sin and never change. This is what leads us to the worshiping of other idols. Because sometimes we feel as if God's standards are too high. We create for ourselves idols then that have less high standards. Idols that will embrace our lifestyles instead of telling us to change and improve. These idols are perfectly fine with our mediocrity. The problem then lies right there in the mediocrity. A half-baked idol will never provide us salvation. 
An idol will never forgive people of their sins, nor regenerate them and give them a new heart. The only thing that will be guaranteed with the worship of idols is that they will be put to shame. The chasing of images is a path of folly, ending up away from God as his enemy and piling up for themselves judgment. The psalmist finishes verse seven by saying, worship him, all you gods. Now, I would like to make a quick clarification here on this verse uh, because we are reading here from a Western perspective. You see, to a first century Middle Eastern audience, this line is not very problematic. At the time of writing, most, if not all civilizations uh, were at least somewhat theistic, believing and praising in individual gods of their region or people group. What the psalmist is doing here in this passage is not confirming the existence of other gods. It would be inappropriate for us to get such a principle out of this text. What the psalmist is saying is that if they were real, their authority would always be subordinate to Yahweh. These these lowercase g gods would worship our God Yahweh because Yahweh is the one and true God and these lowercase g gods are subject to Yahweh's lordship just as everyone else is. So how do we respond to this? How do we apply this to our lives knowing that some people worship the God of the Bible, the God who has revealed himself in scripture and knowing that other people worship images created up for themselves. Well, during our time in Psalm 1 a couple of weeks ago, I asked you about how you were spending your time and what idols you may be serving as a result of where you allocate your time. But for our application of this point, I want to adjust that previous point a little to focus on how we are witnessing to the people around us. So my question for you this evening is what gods do the people that you are witnessing to serve? As our culture becomes less outwardly religious, we are still inwardly worshiping things, but in a less obvious way. Some people worship the feeling they get when they drink. Others, the feeling they get when their social media post gets a large number of likes. Whatever it is, how can your knowledge of their worship affect the way that you are witnessing to them. We as Christians should try to meet them where they are and point them in the direction of the kingdom. So if someone is chasing the affirmation from others, then how does the gospel tell them that Christ's love is sufficient for them? If someone is chasing comfort and leisure in life, then how does the gospel Give them peace in Christ. We need to be informing our own witnessing when sharing the gospel and showing people that their idols are lacking and that the gospel of Christ and a relationship with God is the only way of living that will be ultimately fulfilling. And finally, let's look at the last couple of verses here in Psalm 97. 
picking up back in verse 8. It says, Zion hears and is glad, and the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments, O Lord. For you, are, O Lord, are the most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. O you who love the Lord, hate evil. He preserves the lives of his saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light is sown for the righteous and joy for the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, and give thanks to his holy name. Now that we have seen how everyone everyone who's ever lived knows that God reigns inside of their hearts, we see how we as his people specifically should be reacting to this truth. This part of the psalm is mirroring back to the beginning of the psalm, which showed how God reigns, which, which with, with this part of the, the psalm showing us the effects of God, God's reign. This leads God's people in Zion to rejoice at his work. And just like in the beginning of the psalm, should move us to worship and rejoice in the work that the Lord has done. We start the section by seeing Zion rejoicing over God's judgment of the world. Now we as modern readers often approach the word judgment with a preconceived notion that judgment can, means almost exclusively bad things. Our media and our stories in our culture make judgment to look as a bad thing so that, that we should be mourning so seeing Zion, God's people rejoice over judgment can sometimes make us a little bit uncomfortable. The thing is, and what the psalm tells us, is that we should be rejoicing in this truth. God's judgment means the ushering in of the new age to come. The world will be perfect once again. We will experience true joy and peace in ways that we could never experience without his judgment. There will be no more injustice or sin when his judgment comes. If we are to look forward to the age to come, then we should be looking forward to his judgment as well in celebrating with the rest of God's people, especially because that means that we will be reunited with our Lord forever. In verse 10, we then see more of how his people are reacting to the fact that God is king. Since our king is fully righteous and just, the people then try to align themselves with the king's ideals. We as Christians start to hate evil things and love the things of the Lord. Temptations become easier for us to, to avoid because of our love for the Lord. It triumphs over our temptations. His people's lives are preserved and they are delivered from the hands of the wicked. When we are saved by the power of Christ's death, we become grafted into God's promise. We are adopted into God's family and his concern for us becomes permanent he wants to protect us just as a father protects his children because we are his children. The wicked will never triumph against us because the all-powerful, all-loving God 
is on our side and watching over us. The Lord's reign also allows the godly to bask in the light and morally upright to experience joy. When looking at verse 11, I prefer the net Bible version of this verse because it changes the ESV's light is sown for the righteousness to the godly bask in the light. This paints for us the idea that the righteous are not only enjoying their, their new identity in the light, but also relishing in their time in the light. It will bring pure bliss being in the presence of God and enjoying communion with him in the light. If we are fully, if we are fully aligning ourselves to God's standards, then there will be nothing but joy and celebration at his coming, at his work, and at his reign. Our cup will be overflowing with joy, and we will rejoice and be glad in his work. Another thing that I love about verse 11 is said very well by another commentator. He says, It is not the inhabitants of Zion or Judah mentioned in verse 8 who receive light and joy. Rather, It is whoever responds to God in righteousness and uprightness of heart. Presumably, therefore, and given the context of this psalm, some of those who respond will be non-Israelites. Equally, the the reader may assume that some of the Israelites might not respond in the way described in verse 11 and therefore rob themselves of these blessings. It is fascinating that it is the character that the character of the that it is the character of the respondent that is the key not his national or cultural identity we give thanks to the lord because he is so gracious toward us he is perfectly righteous and has shown us his righteousness tangibly through his son jesus christ as we are coming off our celebration of christmas We should not stop celebrating the incarnation of Christ. Jesus perfectly revealed to us the perfect righteousness of God and gave us the opportunity to be reconciled to our holy God. He died a sinner's death and even though he himself was holy so that we ourselves may be holy. And now Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father who sits on the throne of grace and intercedes for us on our behalf. That is all, this is all that we may be included in this kingdom of grace and be able to celebrate the reign of God as the one and only God for the rest of eternity. We praise God that he has blessed us with this chance it is the, as it is the one and true perfect gift that we could ever receive. And we rejoice together knowing the fact that God reigns. Amen.